this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On an early morning at the end of September, the second grade children gathered in the stone courtyard of Yehuda Hanasi's burial cave. It was the most famous grave in Bet Sha'arim. Dark green cypress trees framed the park's manicured lawns. Limestone facades softened the harsh light of the Middle East. And along the road that twisted above the grounds, scattered stones from a synagogue, a few homes, an olive press, and a gate were all that remained of the community. Yehuda Hanasi, a prince from the line of King David, brought with him out of the cauldron of Jerusalem, 200 in the year 200 of the Common Era. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network. And today I'm speaking to author Miriam Sivan about her novel, Make It Concrete. Miriam grew up in New York and has lived near the beach in Tel Aviv for over 20 years. She teaches literature and writing at the University of Haifa and has published both fiction and scholarly work on American writers such as Cynthia Ozick, James Baldwin, and Jane Bones. In addition to teaching, writing, and publishing, Miriam Sivan meditates, practices yoga, and is passionate about dogs. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thanks for inviting me to join you. So let's start with my favorite question. How'd you come to write this book? I came to write this book from um, my experience as a ghostwriter. Before I left uh, New York and moved to Israel, I ghost wrote two books. Uh, one was for a Holocaust survivor. It was a very incredible, intense wrenching and ultimately very fulfilling experience, giving voice to someone and to uh, his life or his family and friends. And there was part of me that thought, hmm, maybe one day I will use that experience as, you know, as writers do, make use of all their experiences. And then years later, it, it came to me that I actually wanted to write a novel where my character was a ghostwriter. Mm. When did this all take place, the, the story in the book? A, you know, I can't exactly remember. We, me and my publisher, we worked it out the years, uh, but it takes place uh, in the pre-smartphone era. So I think it takes place in like the late 90s because people aren't running. I mean, people have flip phones, but not smartphones yet. Mm-hmm, that makes sense. So what about your title? Concrete comes up several times. It's such an interesting use of the word. Can you talk about that? Sure, I'd love to, because I actually love concrete. Um, The title has multiple meanings, indeed. Um, The most obvious in connection to uh, ghostwriting is that my character, Isabel, 
she makes concrete the stories that up until that point may not have even been told, or if they were told, they were just told orally. And she, uh, by sitting with survivor after survivor, she creates a concrete material object, i.e. the book, um, that they then have that is, can be very life-transforming. So that's the most obvious um, example um, and usage of concrete. The less obvious is that Isabel, and this also like me, has a love affair with the actual building material concrete. Um, and I don't know how uh, familiar you are with concrete pours, but they're very exciting. And in the book, um, Isabel Wax is very poetic whenever there's a concrete pour um, that she's invited to attend. She built her own house. Um, this is also something I did in the Galilee, and I always said I would make use of that very difficult experience, <laughs> and I did. Um, and Isabel, one of the uh, men she's very close to in her life, he builds houses and um, he, what's the word called? He indulges her, her passion for concrete, and she goes over to his private homes when they're being, um, during the pours, and, um, and she, you know, waxes very poetic, as I said, about the concrete, but it's not just the material itself. You know, concrete's this modern material, um, and it's quite amazing the way, the way you, it can be formed, uh, and she sees in it the form out of chaos, and she talks about this. The tov vohu, she says, quoting Genesis, where there was the primordial chaos and then God created form. Well, she's very secular, and she's not trying to be sacrilegious, but she sees concrete in those terms that where homes are being created, where lives, where separations and material um, boundaries are being made in which people can live in love. So Isabel, your protagonist, is she's pretty complex, uh, in addition to her love of concrete, she's filled with a lot of contrast. Did she turn out the way you envisioned her? Uh, you know, I don't envision my characters so much. I feel them, and um, she surprised me in certain ways. She was, I think, um, a, a, even bolder than I imagined, um, and I, you know, the book actually had an, um, a number of endings. And I, the ending that it has now is the ending, it's a softer version of my original ending where she doesn't entirely capitulate to being with her boyfriend, meaning he wants to go on and move in together and, you know, and take, up, take the relationship up a notch. In my original ending, she was pretty stoically against it, even though she loves him very much. And then I wrote a version where she, she understands that he's right and she, quote unquote, gives in. That didn't feel right either. It wasn't Isabel. And so the version now is that she doesn't capitulate to his demand, but she says, and she says it a few times in the last scene, maybe, just maybe, meaning she's softened. But Isabel's tough. Yeah, she's tough. You have to be tough to do what she does. Yeah. So you begin the book in a burial cave of a famous second century rabbi. Can you talk about the cave and Isabel and the whole situation. That opening scene, right, takes place in the burial cave in uh, Rahab, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Judah the Prince. He was the head of the Sanhedrin, the head of the Jewish, uh, the Israelite uh, government, 
It was a theocracy in those days. We're talking Roman period, 200 CE. And when the, um, when the Israelites were losing the war to the Romans, no surprise there, he took his, um, many of his scholars to this area of the Galilee where they decided to write down the part of the, the Bible that had been oral. He is um, an incredible figure, um, a royal figure called the prince. And the necropolis where he was, he, I mean, his bones are no longer there. It's now a national park. And Isabel lives right by that park. And anyone who comes to Israel is more than invited to go see it. It's called Bet Sharim. It's very, very beautiful, especially if you also like antiquities, full of these ancient burial caves, ancient sarcophagi, cave um, drawings and carvings. And Isabel's son is getting his first copy of Genesis, Second grade, this is standard uh, Jewish-Israeli um, uh, public school curriculum. In second grade, after they already know how to read from first grade, they get their first copy of the Bible, just the book of Genesis. It's a textbook, and they work through it all year. And her son gets it at this very wonderful and beautiful ceremony. Parenthetically, my daughter went through this. This is where the scene came from. Um, and it's in a moment there where the... The, and Isabel thinks this, where the modern and the ancient collapse into, into the one moment. It's very, very beautiful, very moving. Also, Yehuda Nasi, uh, he wrote the Mishnah, the Oral Torah, and his that level and that style of Hebrew became the basis for modern Hebrew, the, the modern Hebrew that's spoken today. So for Isabel, who made a decision to move to Israel from New York, and, and who, as I said, is secular, but yet, uh, and is not some kind of raving nationalist either, still, she is spiritual and she is soulful. And to see her small child, you know, at this ancient cave of such an important um, scholar of, of the Jewish world, for him to receive his first book, the book, you know, the, the book that is the binding material for the Jewish people for thousands of years is very, very moving. In addition, Isabel being Isabel, she has, you know, escapades at this cave, <laughs> which I, I don't have to get into right now. But she it's not just uh, children's fun and games there, though she does go there all the time with her dog as well. So it's a kind of a, um, in many ways, that park and those caves represent much of what she both came to Israel for and what um, interests her, and not in a religious sense, but in um, she's ex obviously extremely involved with history. Um, that's her passion. Um, and so she loves the fact that the contemporary and the ancient uh, ex coexist. Uh, so you were a ghostwriter for a Holocaust survivor, and that is what Isabel does for a living. And she has written something like 15 of them. And she's 47 years old. Her parents were also survivors, but had never told their story. And suddenly now she is stymied in her work by their secrecy. Why is this project so difficult? Why is she stymied? Well, I think there's um, there's three big factors because um, this is right. This is where we meet Isabel. She's actually writing in the middle of writing her 16th uh, ghostwrite. And this is the hardest book to date, as she says, even though this is one of those stories where there's none of the 
most wretched scenes. This is because this is a um, Chaim Benjamin is a, a Jew from Saloniki and he was hidden through the war after the Germans evacuated, evacuated, excuse me, after they cleaned out his uh, village, he hid peasants in the north by the Yugoslav border hid him. So we don't have scenes of transport, of ghetto, of camp, like in many of our other mm-hmm. books. Um, still, of course, there's obviously a lot of pain uh, for Chaim Benjamin and having lost his whole family after the war, he fi- figures that out. But this book is the hardest, um, A, because it is the 16th book and there is just the power of uh, of um, of too much. Let's put it that way. You know, it's book after book after book. She works for a publisher who is... You know, he's a taskmaster. You know, he calls her up from New York. Isabel, this is the refrain in the book. Isabel, I need pages, pages. Isabel, I need pages. He, her public, the publisher who owns the ghost uh, writing uh, publishing house, he feels he himself is a survivor and he feels the pressure of time. People are dying and many people want their stories told. So he's he's relentless in the way he pushes her because this is her 16th ghost strike in 20 years and very, very hard and grueling schedule. So there's just that. So it's, but this particular book, um, so it's that and the fact that she, for some reason, her mother was the survivor. Um, and, you know, like many second generation um, um, survivors, she was very, very protective of her mother. And so, like she says in the book, I when she was a teenager, she said, I could never give my mother hell because she had already been in hell. So I, uh, Isabel says, you know, her job is to protect this woman, not hurt her further. She suffered enough in life. But that comes at the price where the Isabel is self-abnegating. And here she is spending years telling people stories. And this, and that only compounds the kind of the terrible noise, if one can say, the noise of her mother's silence. Her mother absolutely refuses to talk about it and says it's her right not to talk about it and life is beautiful and let's move on. So at 47 years old, the mother of three children, uh, Isabel just finally feels like, you know what, I don't want to protect my mother anymore. I want to know. So there's that. And then the third part that's actually, I think, the most um, uh, is the biggest trigger is Chaim Benjamin is, as I said, he's from Greece. He's from Saloniki. And Isabel, her name is Isabel Toledo, her father is also Sephardi. And her father's from the old Spanish-Portuguese community of New York, the Jews that came with the Dutch you know, in, the, in the 16th century, uh, 1600s also, depends where, you know, but they came then with the Dutch to Curaçao, and then they moved north to Caribbean and North America and other parts of North America. And she has a very... Um, difficult relationship with him. He's no longer alive. He died when she, 20 years earlier. And he was very against her move to Israel. He was very against her passion for your history. He wanted her to look forward. She's stuck looking back. And in a way, she just basically cut him out of her life emotionally in order to move on. And Chaim Benjamin, he keeps saying to her, but Isabel, you're a Toledo. You're, you're Spanish as well. And nobody's talking about the Inquisition and the expulsion and the Holocaust that we went through in Spain. And he has this incredible line. I'm sorry, I'm saying it's incredible. I wrote it, but it's as if he wrote it, not Mm -hmm. me. He says, Isabel in Auschwitz, Ladino, Songs of Spain in Auschwitz. Um, You know, many people who write about the camps write about this. Many of the Jews were able to communicate through Yiddish, but not the Greek Jews, not the Balkan Jews. Mm -hmm. 
and they were fascinating to the European Ashkenazi Jews. Who were these dark, beautiful people, right? The um, Sephardic Jews. So Chaim Benjamin pushing her. He says, I think you should write a book where you talk about the Third Reich and, uh, and Spain and Iberia and what happened to us there. And she's like, oi, gewalt. Like, I, I, I don't have enough on my shoulders. Now I have to take on Spain. And, um, but this is pushing her to think about her father. And it's just all too much. You see, all three things just roll into this one big snowball that, that almost uh, threatens to crush her at this moment. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, one of the things I loved uh, about Make It Concrete, it's a, a book about someone who's writing books, telling, it's a story about somebody who's telling people stories. And in the book, everybody's telling different stories. And we're all over the world, all over history. So um, it's really packed full of stuff. Interesting and beautifully written. I will say you're, you're right in quoting your own sentence. It, it was it was a lovely sentence. So um, let's talk about her kids. Her, she has two older daughters and they appear and she worries about them. And there's a few uh, different escapades. But her seven-year-old son really drives more of the action. Yes. And that's because, A, he's little and he demands much more of her time and attention. Uh, and... Um, I think that's probably why he lives with her more. She has to just deal with him much more and, and happily so. I mean, she has the eldest, her eldest daughter, right, who she has a little freak out about when she finds out that there's been a terrible train accident in, um, in India where her daughter is visiting. Um, but this is all to show that Isabel's kind of losing it. You know, she, she's beginning to lose the, the, the taut line between her contemporary life in the Galilee and the lives of all the people who uh, who survived the the Holocaust, the Shoah, that whose lives she's written. For her, everything is a potential catastrophe at this point. I mean, this is what she realizes towards the end of the book. I'm not. I don't think I'm giving too much away. Is that she realizes that she can't keep using the Holocaust as a measuring stick in the world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, you're hungry. Well, you're not really that hungry because those people starved for months. Like, oh, okay. You know, it's not really a healthy way to live. Anyway, so her eldest daughter, she's more in and out, even though there are some lovely scenes with her. And then the second daughter, who is actually the cause for the big uh, meltdown, she's in the army. This is also, you know, what was interesting to me to write about was for Americans or anyone not living in Israel, really, to see what life is like here for for a family now. Isabel's not average, and this is not an average family because she's an immigrant, and she's a writer, and she's an intellectual, and she has a very um, rich uh, emotional and sexual life. And, you know, she's not traditional in any way. But still, everyone sends their – not everyone. Many people send their kids to the army. Many people, you know, are juggling children of different ages – and I just wanted to show what it would, what it's like for a mother, a woman, uh, to live out many of these different kinds of um, parts of her life. And her daughter Yael, who's in the army, 
Um, now, I, um, she has, it's a daughter, so it's a lot less intense than if it were a son. And it's a lot less intense if it were a son who was a combat soldier. I mean, I watched my friends, you know, suffer. Obviously, the boys were suffering more, but I watched my friends suffer for years while their sons were in the army. And if we had a war or, or some kind of battle that wasn't called a war, um, and I saw people melt down all around me. Uh, understandably. And I wanted to talk about that. And actually, Isabel does have a meltdown when her daughter is part of a, uh, actually a real um, battle that took place in Janine a few years ago. Um, and she's convinced because she no longer has any internal fortress that her daughter's going to die. Like that, that's it. She just knows it. And of course, that. Please, I mean, she daughter doesn't die. Everyone's fine, uh, but the the terror. I mean, people here live with such degrees of terror um, that they don't show. And this is what Isabel and her be- her best friend is a, is a, a Jew from Dublin, Molly, and uh, who's also a shrink. And Molly keeps telling her we're not as good at this because we weren't raised here. So I wanted to show what life is like here, and also the immigrant. Uh, perspective. Now, Uri is the seven-year-old that you asked about, and he's just so adorable, <laughs> I think. Um, and yeah, he drives more of the story because he's there. You know, she's got to get home to feed the kids. She's got to be home in the evening. You know, and 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 she and she relishes it. She adores it. Um, but even his is a line that says, even his birth was an Israeli experience. In America, she wouldn't have had this third child years after her children were already older. But her husband at the time said, let's do it, thinking it would help their marriage. Um, and um, Which it rarely and, does. And it didn't. And it definitely didn't. But she says, you know, okay, it didn't. But she so does not regret having this child. And her daughters, who were 12 and 16 at the time, they're absolutely thrilled with this baby. So he's basically a lucky kid. He's got three mothers. And several fathers. So um, another character who's central to the story is Isabel's dog, Woody. Yeah, you know, I uh, often, I, I don't want to say always because it's not true, but I often write about dogs. Um, and I write about dogs because I love dogs. I love cats too. I love animals. But um, it's easier to, in a way to write about dogs because they're so human. Um, or they've learned to be accommodate us and pretend they're human. Um, and Woody is uh, a Jack Russell who basically, you know, goes many places with Isabel. She's their buddies and he's a part of the family. I mean, he just, you know, when they go visit Yael on the army base, um, she makes it clear. She says, you have to bring Woody. Yael does, the daughters does, because she has hard news to tell her mother. Um, but she's mm-hmm. being transferred to a more dangerous area. And, you know, Woody has to be there. He's like both to comfort the daughter who wants, you know, who wants to just have that kind of dog love, but also for her mother. She wants Woody there to complete the family picture. Um, and uh, and he is there. He's very much, and actually, and that, you know, Many people have told me that the scene with him when Isabel has her meltdown, um, it's just the two of them, is one of the hardest scenes in the book. I don't want to say anything what happens, but he's very critical uh, to her life psychologically and emotionally. And I think um, I have a, a short story that was published many years ago, and it's about a stray dog on a kibbutz. And the character there says, who is not a stray? Right. And who 
who does mm. not sometimes not belong. And I think um, I, as a, uh, a writer, as a person, individual, maybe also as an immigrant, also as a child of immigrants in America, I, I relate to that. You know, the vulnerability of these dogs um, and how easy it is to become homeless and stray. Mm-hmm. So we already talked about the geography of place, how things happen all over the world or stories are told all over the world. So um, now I want to ask about Isabel's kind, accepting boyfriend, who's so wonderful, in contrast to her two lovers. Can we talk about Emmanuel? Yeah, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is... Like he's he's just lovely, and she knows it. She just she's smart and good looking and kind and and, and he loves and her. He loves her and her mother and Molly just do not know what's wrong with her. Right here, you have this amazing man. They keep telling her and like, what is up with you? And what's up with Isabel is one is she's very reluctant she's resistant to domestication she doesn't want to be in a domestic relationship with a man again she says i was married for 20 years i was you know monogamous i gave it my all i know exactly what that's all about and i kind of she says i want to have fun and i'm afraid that if emmanuel she has this line where she says put a park a man in my house you know in my kitchen every morning my living room every night in my bedroom i'll after six months i'll be bored um i think she is maybe exaggerating uh, what many people do experience, which is domesticity is not always a great companion to romance. Um, that doesn't now. And her friend Molly, the shrink, says, "Well, that's okay, but you're being immature. What are you? You know, 14. You know, we're talking about life and, and adults living together and sharing lives and sharing children. And so Isabel's resistant to the idea, I think, more than to the actual man himself." She knows that he's wonderful. Now, um, the young lover she has, um, Zaki, the one that she shares the love of concrete with, um, but she shares something even deeper with him, which is he's the only adult in her life that understands what I'll call now her Holocaust hauntings. He doesn't think it's weird that she's obsessed with the subject, that she'd be obsessed with it even if she weren't uh, a ghostwriter. I mean, that she's a ghostwriter because she's obsessed. He understands it because he comes from a family where almost everybody was killed in the war. They, his name is Zachariah. Mm-hmm. His name in Hebrew means God remembered. There's the idea of memory and remembering in his name. And he was named after someone who was killed um, in the war. And so he he's the only, you know, around her, everyone is saying, including Emmanuel, he's saying, die in Hebrew, enough, enough. Enough already. Let someone else take up the mantle of ghostwriting. Let someone else give voice to the pain. Um, And she's very defensive about that. Um, And Emmanuel um, doesn't understand this part of her. As wonderful and lovely as it is, kind of just tolerates that she's quirky. Uh, Zaki understands, and that binds her to him. Not to mention he's young and attractive, and they have so much fun. He taught her how to be – he's a playmate. They have so much fun together, and she – you know, she enjoys this fun after 20 years of uh, domesticity. Mm, 
I, I also kind of felt like she she doesn't love herself. She's very confused. And here was one of my pieces of evidence for that. She makes sure that her children can defend themselves. Everybody studies karate, except her. Why, why doesn't she worry about her own ability to defend herself? In part, I thought that part of her not being willing to accept Emmanuel's, not having the wherewithal. And not having the wherewithal to, to, to defend herself in a relationship, to hold herself together. She makes domesticity sound like jail. <laughs> and, well, I think it's partly because a big chunk of her married life, she lived on kibbutz. In the old yeah. days where you lived by, as I wrote, life by committee, which is right. fine for sports right. members, right. but not for independent thinking Manhattanites. So I think in some ways it was a kind of jail and the marriage was a kind of jail because he did not un- alone. Her husband, her ex did not understand her at all. He just didn't. They came from such different worlds. Um, I think I think it's not giving too much away to say that towards the end, very end of the book, Isabel understands that she has as much as she's into this fun and frolic, um, that there is, um, an unhealthy relationship, uh, to these lovers, um, that an Emmanuel and choosing him and only him is the healthy choice. I mean, she does at the end, she says goodbye to, to the other two lovers that she has, she understands that, that it's all part of the Holocaust pathology in her mind. Yeah. So um, let's talk about one other thing. I, you had a lot of symbolism in your book. Um, I just gave the one example, the sand on the, show, on the floor of the place where she went with her father. That was symbol, a symbol of something else. What interests you, Judah, about all of those symbols? A, you know, I don't, um, well, I like writing. I mean, you read the books and you know for your, for yourself that I can't just tell a simple story. You know, I have multiple stories going on, multiple um, references, and to write using symbols and strong images just is just my natural, very natural, and my natural vocabulary. And you know, it's funny because I teach literature, right? I'm a, a lecturer at the university, and the same kind of analytic skills that I will use to a text that we're studying in class, I never use on my own work. So some of the most obvious mm-hmm. symbols are, I mean, I know they mean a lot, but I don't bring that kind of analytic thinking to it. it kind of ruins the romance for me. I mean, it's silly to say this, but this is, I'm telling you the truth, Um but yeah, my mind just runs to, but I don't even think they're symbols. For me, there is just um, interesting settings. I'm very interested in images for me, even though I use literature, but I'm very, I write very much from a musical place. Words have sound and images are, are very resonant for me. Uh, you know, I, I, so I kind of am using words, but I'm, but I'm listening and seeing. Huh. Well, Miriam, this is so fun for me. This is like my own personal book group, book group discussion. But but not everybody who's listening to this has read the book. So um, let's not tell them anything else. How about if you tell me what are you working on next? Well, my I'm working on two things. One is I have another novel 
uh, that I think is going to go through another level of revision. Um, uh, and uh, it's called Love Match. But it's basically done. But I think I just need to go through, it needs to go through the washing machine one more time. And the other project, which I'm actually very, very excited about, is a screenplay uh, based on the life of a real woman, a, a European woman who moved to Israel, oh, excuse me, who moved to America and was part of the Hollywood scene. I can't give too much away, but uh, okay. the, the war is there as well. World, I can't get away from World War II and I can't get away from Europe, um, but it's really an untold story of a very important woman, a part of the recovering of our history. Ooh, can't wait to see it. Can't wait to read when your new book comes out. And thank you so much for joining me on this New Books Network podcast. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Galit. It was a real pleasure. And thank you for listening. Again, this is GP Gottlieb. And today I've been talking to Miriam Sivan about her book, Make It Concrete. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.com dot do forward slash nbn forward slash join thank you